You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. We can talk about the hardware and software all day, but social technologies Mm -hmm. like trust, like mutuality, we have to invest as much intellectual and emotional energy into honing those, building those, practicing those. It doesn't come natural. And so part of what we're doing is trying to prototype new relationships amongst ourselves. Like our tagline within the lab is, be careful with each other so we can be dangerous together. Welcome to How to Citizen with Baratunde, a podcast that reimagines citizen as a verb, not a legal status. This season is all about how we practice democracy. What can we get rid of? What can we invent? And how do we change the culture of democracy itself? We're leaving the theoretical clouds and hitting the ground with inspiring examples of people and institutions that are showing us new ways to govern ourselves. I first came across the name Ruha Benjamin, such a great sounding name, during the peak of my rebellion against technology and my realization that it was causing a lot of harm. It was the fall of 2018. I was living in New York City and working out of a place called the Data and Society Research Institute, which is about what it sounds like. They're focused on the impact of data-centric technologies on society and how they affect people especially those in marginalized communities. Ruha was coming through to talk about her new book, Race After Technology, a book that was saying out loud and in print a lot of the things that I'd also been feeling and thinking and saying. In particular, she coined this phrase, the new gym code. I mean, come on, I'm a sucker for wordplay. That's amazing. And this is basically her definition of the new gym code using technology to reflect or even reproduce existing inequalities while concealing that by promoting the tech with the language of progress and objectivity that masks the fact that it's built on the discrimination from a previous era. I cheered when I saw that because it echoed my own statements around the time that we might find the civil rights battles of the future harder to win because they'd be encoded in this technocentric language of progress and fairness and equality, but the systems will actually make us more oppressed by literally codifying discrimination in the data, in tech that's based on our unjust past. We'd write history into our futures, and not in a good way. So Ruha was saying all that and so much more. 
When I saw her three years later at South by Southwest in 2022, she was moderating a panel on a virtual and augmented reality experience that beautifully honored the life of Brianna Taylor. Sadly, we know about Brianna because the Louisville Metro Police shot and killed her in the summer of 2020. In this case, technology was being used to help a family and a community remember Brianna's life, not just her death, and ultimately help them heal. Ruha was helping show a different and more positive experience of technology and its impact, along with bringing community connection and facilitation to the front of her fight for justice. Ruha is echoing that same joy and warmth that Adrienne Marie Brown brought us at the start of this season. And her work connects to the way we think about citizen as a verb here at the show. Our four pillars, show up and participate, invest in relationships, understand power, and value the collective are things she practices, not just preaches, especially on relationships and power. She does much of that practice as founding director of the Just Data Lab at Princeton, where she also teaches. The lab is focused on rethinking and retooling the relationship between stories and statistics, power and technology, data, and justice. They invite community-based organizations to partner with them on building technologies that meet their needs. From mapping the work of companies engaged in immigrant surveillance and developing tools for formerly incarcerated small business owners, to creating playbooks about Black maternal mental health and resources for tenants facing eviction. And that's just naming a few. I consider Ruha to be a kindred spirit, and it's so cool to finally have her on the show. Now, we got together in front of a live IRL audience in New York in September 2022. It was part of a conference and festival called Unfinished. I've been hosting that event for three years straight because it's so well aligned with what we do here at How to Citizen. This gathering is predicated on interpreting the project of America, the possibilities of technology, even democracy itself, as, well, as unfinished. Especially in this moment where both democracy and technology feel like they're on the precipice of something. Something great or something terrible. While at Unfinished, Ruha and I sat down for a special live taping of How to Citizen, which you'll hear right after we pay for this podcast with an ad break. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo play. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. 
Yes, yes, smatterings of applause are encouraged. Encouraged, thank you. We're here, uh, first context on the podcast, which I assume you all listen to religiously, but there may be one person <laughs> who's never heard of podcasting um, and hasn't gotten around to the billion that exists in the world. Uh, the premise of our show is that we interpret the word citizen as a verb. And we see it as an opportunity to include people in the process as opposed to this noun that divides us from one another, separating people across imaginary lines. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sitting here with you, Ruha, because of your book. And I was out here yelling in these internet streets <laughs> about you know, the bias baked into the system and they're making us new digital slaves and uh, black box. First of all, why I gotta be a black box? Why can't it just be another obfuscated <laughs> box? Why I gotta be black? So uh, I feel like you gotta read Ruha, you gotta read Ruha. Yeah. So I came across Race After Technology, the new, new Jim Code, mm -hmm. after having already read the new Jim Crow many years mm -hmm. prior. And I would love to know to start us off how your weaving mm -hmm. of medicine and technology and technological systems mm -hmm. with ideas of power yeah. and ultimately liberation, which we'll get to, yeah. where does that come from for you? Yes, so many origin stories. First of all, <laughs> Hi everyone, good to see you. I'm so thrilled to be in conversation with Baratunde, whose work I read when I first started teaching as a young assistant professor at BU. And it was the first and only book that had me cackling on the airplane, like to, the, to, to everyone around me was mad because I was yes. reading this and just loved how incisive, how brilliant, how, how you use humor to get us to open our hearts and mm. our minds. So thank you well, so thank much. thank you. She's referring to How to Be Black. Yes. Uh, which if you haven't bought, you're racist. That's ah. <laughs> it's, it's just the marketing science. It's not, it's not, exactly. not accusing you. Exactly. You. <laughs> so I just, I have been um, a huge fan of Baratunde's work for a long time. Um, so, so many origin stories, you know, when someone asks you, how did you start? And also, I'll try to just distill perhaps two quick personal experiences or times in my life that have led me to this work. One is as a youngin growing up in Los Angeles, imagine little seven or eight-year-old Ruha in the back of her grandma's gold Chrysler cruising down Crenshaw Boulevard. Ruha got uh, you all in <laughs> Exactly. And how many times have I heard that? Oh, one. I'm the original. <laughs> I'm the first. Um, so, you know, and just being, a, you know, just a wide-eyed young kid, um, you know, and Passing by, this one moment passing by, a, a group of boys from my school lined up against the fence very close to my house, being patted down very aggressively um, and shamefully, and just kind of catching their eye as I'm in the back seat and seeing that very overt form of policing that wasn't just meant to shame them and control them, but it felt like a message to all of us. Um, about where we belonged and what we were, what we could expect. And that was reinforced and amplified in many, many different ways, most notably just the everyday audible experience of police helicopters rumbling overhead in Los Angeles, you know, as yeah. a resident, and just the literal wall shaking in my grandma's house at periodic intervals. So I think of us as being in police-occupied neighborhoods. Um, and so, you know, as a young mother then, I remember times putting my boys to sleep in that same house and the lights of the helicopters shining in and waking them up. And so this very physical presence of policing, then realizing that, oh, there are other less visible, less audible ways in which surveillance technologies are being deployed that perhaps are even more dangerous because I can't point to them, right. because I can't see them. And so it sort of led me to look behind the screen, look at things that are out of sight, but are nevertheless classifying people, controlling our lives and in, in very harmful ways. And so there's this experience of just being someone who understands what it is like to be watched yes. and not seen that has led to this work. The other origin story comes from being a young mother. I had my, my sons in my 20s and uh, living in Atlanta, Georgia at the time. And 
with my first son realizing what the experience was probably going to be like with childbirth and the overly medicalized approach to childbirth in this country and understanding that there are different schools of childbirth. There's the conventional obstetrics medicalized approach to childbirth that we're familiar with and that I binge watched when I was pregnant with the birth story and just understanding what I could expect if I had my child in the hospital, which is that the schedules of other people would precede mine, that I could expect various technologies that I may not necessarily need, that can be Mm life-saving in some situations, but have become normalized. And for those who don't know, the experience of black women in particular in our healthcare settings and childbirth in particular is astronomically worse than everyone else. But I learned about midwifery, a different approach where you can either have your child in a hospital, a birth center, at home, with the accompaniment of doulas and midwives, birth workers, and the experience is much, much different, centers the woman or birthing person, centers our autonomy, um, our dignity, um, is based on respect and mutuality and trust, and that's what I chose to do, and that's when I became critical of both authoritative forms of knowledge, whether whatever sciences or medicine that is, but also the other forms of expertise that exist and that are often sort of, you know, marginalized and discounted in the form, in this case, of childbirthing knowledge, um, and also became critical of the overabundance of technology in our lives that we may not necessarily need. But that just gives you a sense of my critical take on um, when things are being sold to us as a straightforward good without thinking carefully about how they're actually being experienced. Would you describe this as your critical race theory? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I would. <laughs> yes, I would. No, we'll, we'll bleep that out <laughs> yes, before I we would. put it in the because I want the people of Georgia exactly. to be able to hear this. Exactly. Midwifery is actually a, a good and unexpected segue. I'd like to spend the bulk of the remainder of our time in this word seeds Mm -hmm. and in midwifing new ideas of design justice, of freedom, of thriving, of liberation. Mm -hmm. One effort that you've undertaken is to create the Ida B. Wells Mm -hmm. Just Data Lab Mm -hmm. at Princeton. Uh, What is that? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that because that means we get to talk about my students, which is where a lot of my optimism, hope and energy comes from is getting to hang out with 18 to 22 year olds all day um, who are both critical and creative in their approaches. And so Ida B. Wells, um, I named it after Ida B. Wells because. And now an explainer tune day. If you're not familiar, Ida B. Wells was a civil rights leader, suffragette and investigative journalist who lived from 1862 to 1931. She's best known for her work documenting racial terror lynchings in the United States. And her most famous work is The Red Record, an historic effort to quantify lynchings in the U.S. after slavery. I named it after Ida B. Wells because, for many reasons, but one very personal reason is that her grandson was my dissertation advisor, Dr. Troy Duster. And so I felt a kinship with her, her family, and that legacy because he's the one who brought me into this field of the sociology of science, knowledge, and medicine. And so as a tribute to that legacy, and also because she used both statistics and stories to shine a light on what is ailing us and and the forms of violence and injustice. And it's that combination, those different tools that we need, the data, but the data itself is not gonna save us because people can tell all kinds of stories about data to justify all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And so it's that marrying of the narrative with the statistics that she modeled so brilliantly in the red record and that I wanted to use as a beacon for my own students. So these are students who aren't necessarily in my classes. Some of them are. They come from many different disciplines, from the STEM side, humanities, social sciences, but they share an underlying desire to engage in what we call tech justice. And so thinking about technology not just as hardware or software, Mm -hmm. 
but taking the stories as seriously as we do the software. So we have artists up in there. Yeah. We have people who ne didn't necessarily take a single computer science class, but who are bringing a different skill set and approach. And one of the, the ways that we've structured the lab is that we collaborate with community-based organizations. This is insanity. What are you describing? This so, is so reasonable and so, humane I and know. consensual. Exactly. We that is not the technology that so many of us have been exactly. subjected to exactly. in an autocratic kind of way, literally as subjects to someone else's will. And so you're describing really all those words, this consensual, yes. respectful relationship where it is a feature, not a bug, that someone who isn't a computer programmer is involved exactly. in the programming exactly. because non-programmers are going to be living with these technologies. Exactly. So what sorts of critical and creative work yeah. have been prototyped and researched in this lab? So as I was saying, we take our marching orders from the organizations that we collaborate with okay. rather than study them or bring ideas to them. Yeah. We ask, what would help you as an organizer? What would help you as a, an organization do your work better? Silicon so Valley, are you listening? <laughs> you don't have to pre-bake the solution. No. You could just... Ask. Talk to those who are most impacted, yeah. whether we have a team working on housing justice, we have a team working on, on workers' rights, we have a team working on maternal mortality, mm. and they collaborate with organizations all over the country, some in Canada and elsewhere. But again, so getting the questions from the source, yeah. right? And so when we think about design justice, we think about collaboration, most Corners of our world, like if you go to NSF, National Science Foundation, and get a grant, they'll tell you, you better have a community organization involved. But oftentimes we're involving them much later in the process, right? right? And sometimes it's window dressing. Sometimes it's theatrical right. in terms of showing that you have this community support rather than starting at the very, very beginning mm -hmm. and find out what questions should we be asking as researchers, as a lab, and get the questions and get the insights from the start that let that be directed by our partners. Yeah. Um, and so if you go to the Just Data Lab, Org and go to the projects tab, you'll see a wide range of projects that have come out of it, um, whether it's dealing with police surveillance. Um, oftentimes we're casting the light back on power, going back to how to citizen, mm. um, rather than studying the most vulnerable who are trying to navigate hostile systems, we say, who's creating this vulnerability? Who's creating this risk? Let's actually point our digital lens yeah. and collect data and shine a light on upstream what's creating these problems. So I'm going back to the picture you initially painted of these brothers with their hands up on the wall being subject to an ill system. Mm -hmm. And I'm imagining a world where your lab mm -hmm. is talking to them yes. and working backwards up, up the stream. What have been some of the results and at least feedback, yeah. especially from the community members, yeah. from being much more involved in creating their own solutions? Yes. And so, you know, one, one example of one of the organizations that we have um, learned from is called Stop LAPD Spying Coalition. You may have heard of them. Um, Very and, subtle name. I don't, know, <laughs> exactly. I don't know if I know what they're about. Yes, exactly. The Stop <laughs> LAPD Spying Coalition. And so they have modeled for us in their advocacy, in their research, is they base their own advocacy and organizing on talking to community members first. So they created a survey mm. and with a whole range of questions about what it feels like to be watched and all of the different ways that people might not know what surveillance means. They might not know what predictive policing means, but when you break it down and say, has X, Y, and Z, have you experienced this? Have people in your family experienced this? Has this happened to you? Then that is an abundance of knowledge that might not necessarily have the latest jargon and lingo attached to it, but it's a form of deep experiential knowledge yeah. upon which then their organizing and their advocacy work has been built and they have been so successful in actually beginning to change some of the policies, putting moratoria on certain predictive policing practices in LA, but that has been based on actually listening to people, right? It's so basic. Yeah. But it's also what I resonate with about that is how does it make you feel? Yes. What is it like to live like this? And I think we can be very abstracted away from other people's experiences when there's statistics. Yes. And, and a word surveillance is not a deeply emotional word. Exactly. But not trusting. Yes. We know that feeling. 
and we don't like that feeling. Yeah. And I'm just imagining some of the other words from my own experience that if we could build deeper sympathies and empathies around the shared emotion, we don't want to project that onto other people. It's something yes. that we wouldn't want to experience ourselves. Yes. Yeah. Yo. Yes. <laughs> Anything else you want to brag on from, from your Just Data students there, before I move? Um, no, I would just really encourage, you know, we, a part of it is just as much about the process as the endpoints, mm -hmm. the, pro the projects or the outputs. We call them outputs yeah. that you can find. And so a lot of this has to do with creating new forms of relationships because we can talk about the hardware and software all day, but social technologies mm -hmm. like trust, yeah. like mutuality, yeah. we have to invest as much intellectual and emotional energy into honing those, building those, practicing those. It doesn't come natural. We it's have hard to, to actually put a price on it. No, you, know I mean? you can't. You can't. Trade it so you can't. No, yeah. and so there's not as much investment in it. Right. And so part of what we're doing is trying to prototype new relationships amongst ourselves. Like well, our tagline within the lab is, "Be careful with each other, so we can be dangerous together." So this is a way of, you know, treating one another. That sounds Wakandan. Yeah, okay. All right now. Because, you know, uh, for me it's important because I have seen from the outside so many really noble undertakings where the end just, you know, justifies the mean, where when you actually are spending time with people, we're not treating each other in the ways that we want the world to mirror back to us. Like so what is, what is that? What's a practical yes. example or implementation of how internally yes. you are careful with each other, whereas yes. another institution focused on output may not be? Yes. So there's, there's two. One is sort of, you know, might seem le less grand, but it's, you know, really respecting each other's time and commitments. So if we say we're going to do something at a certain time, don't just be respectful to me as the director, but I want you to have the same regard and respect for each other's time. So that's just a everyday type of thing. But even sort of bigger picture beyond the lab for all of us to consider is to think about we're in this moment of this, this really flourishing of abolitionist thought and imagination. So it's this twin process. We're trying to bring down and we're trying to grow. We're trying to plant these seeds. And so part of that is being critical of the way that punishment and policing has infected not just the obvious police, but so many of our institutions are punitive. Healthcare is punitive. Like I've heard nurses say that, you know, if a patient is non-compliant, they're supposed to call in the police or do X, Y, and Z. Right. School, we know, is super punitive. Yeah. And so if we're critical of that, but in our own relationships with each other, we are punitive. Mm -hmm. We punish each other for all kinds of things in ways that can be passive aggressive or just aggressive aggressive, yeah. you know? And so I remember some years back being on this kind of traveling caravan with some wonderful colleagues going through South Africa. And one of the people on our, our traveling bus was, was the Angela Davis. And she was standing Humble in front. Bread. I know. <laughs> she was standing in front of an auditorium full of students in Cape Town, and there was a question: the, the, "What do we do?" Question. Mm -hmm. You know, like we're so excited. Like, what do we do? She was like, "Well, you know, we can't be critical of policing out there if we're punitive in our relationships in here. We have to start modeling. We have to start prefiguring the world we want, yeah. right? In how we treat one another." Um, and so that's part of the ethos to think about, like, how do we show up in, when people are not looking, yeah. when there's no lights, no camera, you know, behind closed doors, because if it's all just for the, for the show and we're not really practicing mm -hmm. those new values, that ethos, then um, I don't think we have a strong foundation on which to erect these structures that we imagine we want. So in the lab itself, what does that look like then? Do you, do you not punish people at all? Do you punish people for punishing people? <laughs> There's accountability versus punishment. Right. I think that's two very different things, yeah. right? And that's part of when we think about you know, the abolitionist approach is like, it's not a free for all. Mm -hmm. We don't just do things and there's no consequence, okay. but it's really about thinking about when someone does something that violates a norm or it's not respectful. Um, if we really want that action to change, then we have to approach it in a way that fosters, that invites that change rather than punishment doesn't change people's behavior. Mm -hmm. And so really thinking about, you know, when we had situations, I mean, we, we created the lab at the beginning of COVID. 
which means people's lives are upside down and we want them to focus on work and research. I don't care how important it is. You have a whole life. You have parents dying. You have siblings who are sick. And so part of bringing this ethos inside the lab is to say we are whole people. We are students sometimes. We're professors. We're not our jobs. And so it's trying to build in that approach to put work in its place, <laughs> you know? And so I think we can appreciate that in, yeah. in our own, beyond what I'm talking about and thinking about the role of work and, you know, getting things done, mm-hmm. but also realizing that we're living in an extraordinary moment in which we're all hurting, we're all grieving. And so we, we shouldn't simply just put our emotions at the door. We should find a way to metabolize it in the way that we work and organize ourselves. Metabolizing and whole person mm-hmm. reminds me of the day I first saw you in person. Mm-hmm. South by Southwest 2022, you were leading a discussion about an immersive art experience called Brianna's Garden, mm-hmm. which was erected to, um, I think, honor the whole person. Yes. It was Brianna Taylor, yes. who many of us only know as a victim of gun violence, of police violence, of the state, of no-knock warrants, of Black Lives Not Mattering. Yes. Um, and so to briefly summarize, this is a, an AR experience, a VR experience now that the family was a part of building. Yes. Um, that has a volumetric capture of Brianna's sister, mm-hmm. uh, the voice of her boyfriend. It's a, you can drop this garden in the room right now. Yep. You can install it from the app store. Um, and you encounter flowers that have voice memos embedded in them. So as you touch a flower, you hear a message from someone who was moved by Brianna, whether they knew her or not. Exactly. There's voices from all over the world. Mm-hmm. Most uh, beautifully uh, and non-hideously, uh, there's no Nazi graffiti mm-hmm. in this space. There's no hate spewing. This is a, a curated experience Very and a curated. moderated yes. space. Yes. And so I saw you moderating this conversation and I wonder how did you get connected to that project and, and what did that mean to you as far as a seed yeah. and an imagination of how we might be using technologies yes. in a way that cares for, yeah. you know, allows us to care for each other and, and create the systems we want to live in. Yes. So first of all, you described it so beautifully. Um, it moved yes. me. It still moves yeah. me to think about it. Um, I think if Brianna's family was not did not co-create this, was not part of it from the beginning, was not asked permission for this to be created, I wouldn't have come near it with a 10-foot pole. Even though I respected the lead designer, the team, to me, it was absolutely crucial that this was their wish, that they had input at every stage, and that in its circulation in the world, that a family member is present Mm. at all of, you know, all, all of the, the yes. Yeah. Um, so I will say I knew the, the lead um, designer on this and how careful she was in Lady Phoenix, Lady Phoenix yeah. in approaching the family. And her motivation was that she noticed that in the aftermath of Brianna's murder that they, there was no place online, which is how especially young people, there's no separation, like your life is online, um, that they could grieve or express themselves. They were being harassed and sent death threats and getting all of these messages. And so like the seed for her was, what if we could create a space for the family to, to express themselves, their love, their care, their grief around this. And that was where Brianna's garden was, first born, but she went and said, is this something that you would want? Again, asking. Asking permission. And if they had said no, she wouldn't have done it. Right. No matter how, now it's won all these awards, it's getting all this attention, but that was not the purpose. Yeah. The purpose was for the family to have a space. And what happened, as you describe, is that it has become a space for so many people, not only to express their emotions around Brianna, but their own gr- unprocessed grief. Yeah at all of the loss that people have experienced over the last two years. So it's really become this model for how we can curate and shape and design different values and create spaces intentionally um, for healing and for solidarity. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, that is the, the, the story of how I was pulled in. And I think 
why I was because I'm so critical of technology. Mm -hmm. So they were like, if we can get her to like this, <laughs> man, we, we must be doing something yeah, good. So yeah. it's kind of like, okay, Ruha's on the panel. So we're good, <laughs> we're, we're good. good. We're good. <laughs> so I, I went to that panel and I installed the app from the audience and I popped it up in my hotel room later mm -hmm. that night. I wept a lot just hearing other people and I was left my own message about mm. you know, losing my mother to colon cancer at a pretty young age of 65 mm. years old. I ended up going months later, it's May-ish, mm. and we had these twin foolish tragedies, uh, self-inflicted in the US, mm -hmm. um, in Buffalo, mm. with the mass shooting at the Topps Food Market, in Uvalde at the school, mm. And I was at I was at my end mm -hmm. with like the whole thing, yeah. just America. Yes. I'm like, I'm out here pre hottest citizen, blah, blah. Done, but, whatever, do your thing. Yeah. I was just, I felt a bit broken. Yes. And I found myself in DC, where I'm from, and I went to the FM Museum. Mm -hmm. And a friend works there, and I said to her, like, I need to be uplifted. Mm -hmm. I get it. The problems are yes. problematic. Problems gonna problem. Yes. My heart is, is broken in pieces. Yes. So I'm gonna skip the basement of the museum, yes. which is all about the origins which will break of you more. The, the slave yes. trade and Belgium and the ships and yes. the Dutch East India Company. I'm like, can you take me to a higher level? <laughs> literally. <laughs> literally, yeah. can we climb the mountain yes. together? And she showed me a few of the dark things just to like yeah. reconnect. Oh, but nice. one of the most beautiful things she showed me is that Rihanna's in the museum. Yes. There's this beautiful portrait. Mm. And I popped open my phone. Mm. Oh. And I put Brianna next to Brianna mm. oh. in the museum. And she had never heard this curator. Hadn't, and so she oh. saw this. Thing. She's like, oh my God. Mm. And it just felt like oh. I, my heart was healed a little bit just having her in her own garden. Wow. Represented in analog art and digital art. I love that. Augmenting our reality with something mm. more beautiful than what the reality I was experiencing totally. at the time. Totally. So yeah, powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. Um, and if, I would I would be yeah. remiss if I didn't say again, echoing Lady Phoenix, that the purpose for the whole team there is not to remember Brianna for her pain, but for her purpose. Yeah. As we know, she was training to be a nurse. She was working at the front lines of COVID, and so for that, the team and the family, she's carrying on her work of healing in doing this for all of us. Yeah, which I experienced directly. Yes. Woo. After the break, how reimagining our social technologies can help us grow the world we want. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. 
we can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. You have this book coming out, mm-hmm. Viral Justice, which is filled with tales of more seeds mm-hmm. that we might cultivate and water and grow into a garden that we would be happy to inhabit in terms of the way we structure our society. Can you share a bit more of the seeds that you're excited about, especially as they relate to our ability to self-govern? And maybe with that intersection of technology and science as well. Absolutely. So um, I'll try to just give you two or three seeds. Um, Literal seeds, I mean, like the beginning is like literally getting our hands dirty in Mm. terms of working with the earth. You know, there's a, a man named Ron Finley in my neighborhood in Los Angeles. Yes. Um, who, the gorilla gardener. The gorilla gardener, the gangster, <laughs> the gangster gardener. gangster gardener, yeah. Um, and so part of it is like him just realizing the food insecurity, the food deserts, and the toll that takes on our health. And so he looked at these parkways that are all over L.A., the little patch of grass between people's homes and and the streets, and said, what if we just created urban gardens? And when he first started, the city cited him. Right. Again, policing. (laughs) There they go again. How dare you try to feed There they go again. Yeah. Um, And so people got, you know, organized with him and not only push that back, but this has flourished this whole, you know, over, I think, 20 urban gardens now using not just the parkways, but all different kinds of spaces. And so it's one of those literal examples of not working in your backyard, but working in your front yard and just starting to create what we need more of. Right. And so thinking about that as a kind of, you know, um, inspiration for all of the different ways we can get our hands dirty and just work right where we are. Definitely advocating for big structural policy changes, not taking away from that, but not waiting for that either. And so the book ends, so if it starts with Finley, it ends with a group in Seattle called the Seattle Solidarity Budget, which over the last couple of years has managed by bringing together over 200 different organizations throughout the city working on all kinds of things from indigenous rights to environmental justice to health care to housing to education. All of them have come together and have managed to slowly start reducing the policing budget and investing in all of these different things that actually make us safe. Mm. And so part of it is this coalition and it's thinking about what do we have in common? We might have these different lanes that we're in, things we really, really care about, but there's this bigger umbrella that's about thinking about budgets, as they say, are moral documents getting back to the data mm-hmm. and understanding that the numbers, you know, th- that is values in those numbers, not just economic values, but our social values are reflected in those numbers. And so they say, if you look at the city budget, those are our values, where we're putting the money. And so they've managed over time working in town hall meetings and Zoom meetings, you can attend and see how they have brought this coalition together and are having success in shifting the values, literally, right. of, of this entire city. And they provide a great model for me of viral justice. Do you have any insight into how they are handling some of the backlash to these moments? There was a peak of people's budgets and participatory budgeting and uh, shifting, reallocating resources away from policing into more community healing, which got shortened somewhat unfortunately at times to defund the police because there was another side to that argument. Now that graffiti's up and crime's up and encampments are up and some people who might have been along for the ride are no longer. Yes. How is the solidarity, you know, budget group there? How are they dealing with that? Yeah, I'm, I can't speak exactly to how they might be dealing with the backlash yeah. in Seattle specifically. But what I've seen as effective is people taking seriously the, this propaganda, these narratives about rising crime and taking issue with policing as a solution for crime, which it's not, because with inflated police budgets, the so-called crime rates, you know, like those things don't, um, aren't correlating, but also asking, you know, what do we want to invest in and taking issue with all of these scare narratives around that. And so there's a number of people, both in terms of social media pushback, but on the ground, 
taking seriously the stories that are being told about our cities and about why people are houseless or why people are, are um, precarious and getting to the root of the problem yeah. without thinking that policing are ever going to be a solution to any of these. Do you have moments of surrender or total exhaustion? Mm -hmm. And if so, how have you pushed through them mm -hmm. or moved beyond them mm -hmm. or have you? Yes. So I'm an introvert, as my friends know. And so I am very careful to refuel, yeah. like as a matter of survival. And so that has to do with me personally, but it also has to do with thinking about when I'm working in groups and collectives in terms of, you know, whether it's student groups or community mm -hmm. groups, like balancing the play and the policy. Like, you know, we have to have that joy yeah. as much as we do the anger. And so I think just in integrating that has helped me sort of chug along like the little engine that could. Um, and I think, as I said, working with young people and feeling like I can't give them this gloom and doom diagnosis of what's ailing us without offering with the other hand, like this is what we can do about it. Yeah. You know, this is how people are already doing things about it. So for me as an educator, especially at a place like Princeton, where they're groomed to think of themselves as the solution to all of the problems, like create an app for that, create a new business for that. My mantra is find out who's already working on that. Listen to them, collaborate with them, learn from them. Don't think of yourself as, and so that actually is an antidote for burnout and yeah. depression because you are working with people. You don't have to do this by you yourself. You don't have to do it. You should not do this by yourself and because that is another kind of hubris, yeah. burnout and hubris. Like, you're not supposed to be doing all of that. <laughs> Why are you trying to fix a whole society? Please. You can't create one sit, by yourself. Sit down. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, if two of you want to throw in a question or a comment, this is the time to shoot your hand up with no, I see one. Anybody else want to get in the queue? Two, okay. Then let's hear from you. Let's hear a name, uh, a geospatial reference as far as where you reside, as specific or general as you'd like, and then your remark, please. My name is Bruce Strauss. I live in New Jersey, uh, about 40 minutes away from Princeton. I have a website called onecommonpurpose.com. It's a holistic look at life. Now, talking about, let's say, racism, which I call ending mistreatment, discrimination, and hatred towards those who are different nationality, different religion, different race, different ethnicity, and different sexual orientation. There's aspects to that that I've never heard discussed. See, the person each of us talks to more than anyone else is oneself. There are things in life that affect a person. Affected in person means you have certain thoughts about certain things that have an impact on your life. So a racist basically has anti-thoughts. That's reinforced by a few other things. I don't want to keep it going too long. But to me, getting to people, and there's a process to get to people when they're younger so that they can understand aspects like that so that if somebody reads or sees or hears something, they can withstand it because they understand what could happen within their own mind. I accept your submission of a comment. <laughs> there was not a question mark at the end of it, I don't think, but I want to thank you. We're at such a limited time. Well, the question is, what do you think of that, each of you? I don't know, man. Um, to be, yeah, it, you, you shared a lot, but I was having a little hard time tracking it. Getting to people younger mm -hmm. and relationship with self feel like two very important pieces of the puzzle. As I mentioned in our principles to start with, having a connection with yourself is very important. And I think on that score, it's, so, it's important before you go out into the world. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of young people actually feel a ton of pressure right now mm -hmm. to have positions and stances and press conference ready mm -hmm. uh, statements about all kinds of complicated things that they might be new to. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's, I'd like to apply some counter pressure or relief mm -hmm. that says it's okay not to know. Mm -hmm. um, I heard something on this stage earlier today that the highest form of wisdom is total uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, that's an, that's an ego check mm -hmm. right there in terms of the value of hubris mm -hmm. that Ruha was just talking about. Um, so it's related you know, to your operation and to your premise. 
we can talk more later about it, but thank you so much for the offering. I appreciate mm -hmm. you. There was one more. Do I need a mic for the Yes, you do, because we're-, we're um, It's behind you. Yeah, they're surrounding. You're being surveilled. Mm -hmm. Super quick question, Dr. Benjamin, I've been following your work, so, so impressive. Um, what would you like to be doing um, that you're not doing right now? Mm. <laughs> and you can't say sleeping. <laughs> Introverting, no. <laughs> um, well, in addition to viral justice, I just finished uh, another short book that'll be out in a, a year or two uh, on imagination. And so it's called Imagination, a Manifesto. And um, I would love to build out this space of creativity, not with just with students, but with artists, and to really um, do some world building with colleagues and with people who I respect. And so it would be taking this in a, in a more creative way and putting into practice some of the ideas that I'm working on on that imagination book. Thank I want to follow up on that one. Yeah. So imagining new worlds mm -hmm. and practicing imagination, something that we do naturally as children and get kind of trained yeah. out of us as we grow. Do you have any uh, brief hacks, approaches, tools mm -hmm. to just get us to flex our imagination muscles more? Yeah, that's chapter five. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's called the imagination incubator. <laughs> so there are lots of prompts and activities yeah. and things because it is a muscle. It's yeah. something that we have to practice, especially in collectives, because then our imagination gets cha challenged. Yeah. So the key a sort of thread in the book is that imagination isn't a straightforward good. We are in many ways living in a eugenics imagination, a techno-utopian imagination. We're living in imagination not of our own design. And so imaginations can be corrupting and limiting. And so part of it is when we work in groups, then we can see the edges of our own imagination. We can try to broaden the imagination in which all of us can flourish, but we can also see the ways that our imagination is infected yeah. with these really old deep-seated ideas about human hierarchy and and um, superiority and inferiority and so the goal is to take imagination seriously yeah. as a terrain of struggle so when I say creativity I don't just mean the literal arts I mean all of the ways in which we are creators we shouldn't simply submit to the designs that we're inhabiting. And we don't have to wait to be billionaires to be able to create something new. Like I'm a student of Octavia Butler. You know, when you go and you look at her papers at the changed. Huntington Library, one of the things you see in her own notes before you even think about her work that's public, her stories and, and so on, you see her notes to herself in the margins of her notebooks where she's building her own life. Like she's saying, I will be a New York Times bestseller. I will have millions of people. This is before, when she was riding the bus to work at a potato chip factory, you know? And so part of it is her, on the one hand, really thinking about her own agency and her own life, but it's also that you see her studying scholarship. You see her making notes about the headlines, medical sociology. And so she ends up writing these stories, but it's based on a deep research and understanding so understanding the porousness across these different fields that we're gathered here in and to take agency back um, away from these, you know, these over-determined ideas about power and inequality that we inhabit that infect our institutions and beginning to seed something different now, yesterday. Seed something like justice? Justice and <laughs> joy. And joy. Oh, I want to keep talking, but we can't. Take justice and joy with you, spread it. Thank you so much. Ruha <laughs> Benjamin. It should be pretty obvious that Ruha and I share a point of view. And, and I just find her to be healing and grounded and even humble in how she practices what she preaches, even as a Princeton University professor who moderates panels at South by Southwest. I find her work to be so relevant because technology is increasingly relevant to our experience of democracy. And I want a democracy that we also build with people and not for them. Because the one we're inside right now was built for and by a very small group of people. When Ruha says that we've been living inside someone else's imagination, she's right. We've been living inside this eugenics imagination. And we have to reimagine ourselves out of it, democratically and technologically, so we can live inside something better. I'm not just talking about widgets and databases and code. 
I'm talking about social technologies that define how we interact with each other, and even how we envision and understand what democracy is, who it serves, and how we experience it. Ruha, she's all about prototyping new relationships with technology, with the community, with our colleagues. And that investment in relationships, that understanding of how those relationships relate to power, they're two of the core principles of how to citizen. And when it comes to the progress we're trying to make in our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our families, Ruha stresses that it's as much about the process as it is about the outcomes. Because if the ways we're working to improve things don't feel good or loving, how can we be sure we're headed in the right direction? Maybe by taking our lead from Ruha and working to be careful with each other, we can be dangerous together against these systems too. I really hope you check out Race After Technology, Abolitionist Tools for the New Jim Code, along with Ruha's latest book, Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want. It's full of great examples of how we can bring democracy and collective decision-making to our use of technology and to our imaginations of the world we can live in. And if you'd like to take a stroll through Brianna's garden, I highly recommend it. Download the AR experience for free in the App Store or head over to briannasgarden.com and check out the creator, Lady Phoenix's work on Instagram. She's at YesLadyPhoenix. In the show notes, we always have actions you can take after listening to each episode. We give you options to go inwards and feel into the material, to become more knowledgeable, or to get involved with others to make an impact. For this episode, we've provided a suggestion for internal reflection that reminds us how witnessing others' protective acts, like standing up for each other, can have large ripple effects. We've also shared two book recommendations from Ruha, The New Jim Crow and Rest is Resistance, you can find links to both these books and many more from past episodes at bookshop.org slash shop slash how to citizen. And if you're in the U.S., we found several ways you can plug into your community with your existing skills and volunteer. These groups take the guesswork out of how to get involved on issues you care about. Don't wait. Sign up for something and meet your neighbors. If you take any of these actions, please brag about it online and use the hashtag HowToCitizen. Also, tag our Instagram, HowToCitizen. I am always online, and I really do see your messages, so send them. You can also visit our website, HowToCitizen.com, which has all of our shows, full transcripts, actions, and more. Finally, see this episode's show notes for resources, actions, and more ways to connect. How to Citizen with Baratunde Day is a production of iHeartRadio Podcasts and Row Home Productions. Our executive producers are me, Baratunde Thurston, and Elizabeth Stewart. Our lead producer is Ali Graham. Our associate producer is Danya Abdel-Hamid. Alex Lewis is our managing producer. And John Myers is our executive editor and mix engineer. Original music by Andrew Epen with additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Joelle Smith from iHeartRadio, and Leila Bina. Next time on How to Citizen, building relationships with the people we're looking to help is vital. But what if you feel so at odds with the people in your community that you can barely talk, let alone work together? And what if you also think they are out to destroy you? Deepening identity-based polarization is happening in this country. The good news is a lot of that is built on a lot of false perceptions of the other side. And so, for example, on several big issues, Democrats and Republicans misperceive the position of the other by 50%. And then you ask, how much you think the other side dehumanizes you? It's off by 50%. And so what's happening is these meta-misperceptions are adding fuel to how we think about the other side in this country. Conflict resolution expert Tim Phillips tells us how to be in community with people we really disagree with and the risks of letting our growing nationwide division persist. Row Home Productions. From BBC Radio 4, 
Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it and travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel, it's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.